Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And again, as we've talked about many times here on SALT Talks, we don't think there's any bigger idea that's disrupting finance and other industries as well uh, than the digital asset, decentralized finance, and Bitcoin space. So we're very excited to welcome you to the latest episode of our digital asset series uh, on SALT Talks with Sheila Warren. Uh, Sheila is the head of data, blockchain, and digital assets and a member of the executive committee at the World Economic Forum, aka Davos. Uh, she founded uh, the Blockchain and Distributed Ledger Team at the Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, C4IR, where she serves as deputy head. Uh, Sheila co-hosts a weekly podcast and TV show called Money Reimagined, which airs on Coindesk TV, Coindesk being one of the leading uh, media outlets that covers Bitcoin and digital assets. And she was also the architect of Presidio Principles, the groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking ethical framework for blockchain applications. Her pioneering policy work uh, is helping shape the data and technology spaces to be more inclusive, ethical, and equitable. Sheila began her career as a Wall Street attorney at Cravath, Swain, and Moore before turning to philanthropy and civic tech over a decade ago. She was most recently the VP of Strategic Alliances and General Counsel at TechSoup. And prior to that role, she launched, uh, she designed and launched NGO Source which is a software as a service product focused on international grant making. She's an honors graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. If there was any doubt about uh, whether she's a genius or not, uh, she obviously uh, well-educated as well. But Sheila, it's a great pleasure to have you on uh, at Skybridge. We are members of the World Economic Forum. I've been to Davos several times. Obviously, it's sort of the cream of the crop in terms of the event circuit and the thought leadership uh, forums that exist out there. So uh, congratulations on being an integral part of what is a fantastic event in Davos and generally a fantastic organization. But I wanna talk about your Eureka moment as we often do at the beginning of these uh, SALT talks on digital assets and decentralized finance and on blockchain. So you come from a fairly normal Wall Street background. You were a lawyer by trade. When did you stumble upon digital assets and say, wow, this is something that's going to be really huge and it's going to transform finance? Yeah, you know, I'm one of those uh, rare people who actually got into Bitcoin digital assets and blockchain as distinct things, which, which you know, now I've corrected <laughs> that initial uh, confusion, let's call it. Uh, but I was into Bitcoin far earlier than I was into even understanding what the heck the technology was that underlay it, right? right. So. Um, funnily enough, my husband got me into Bitcoin. So he's like, there's this thing called Bitcoin, you know, people. And I was at that moment, I was still a lawyer, practicing attorney. So my immediate frame was that's criminal money. Like, what are you <laughs> talking about? We can't possibly, you know, and the story is kind of a funny one. So one day uh, there were helicopters. We live with a mission in San Francisco and there were helicopters outside. It sometimes happens. So we looked outside and we're like, what's going on? So we went to Twitter as one does to figure out like what's happening in my city, you know? Yep. And it turns out SWAT teams had invaded and were arresting uh, Silk Road, like Ross basically. They were like, that was all going down like, pretty close to us. 
And my husband turns to me and he's like, Bitcoin just went on sale. <laughs> and so that's a story of how we got into, into what, Bitcoin. What was the was, price at that point? I, I don't want to out you for being a Bitcoin billionaire right now, but what was the price on that? <laughs> well, if only we hadn't flipped it uh, earlier than we should have, right. it would have been a, let me just say, we'd be sitting on quite the, quite the pocket. But of course, you know, we were smart enough to get back in at a different point in time. Um, you know, I think that for me, I thought of it initially very much as uh, the alternative to gold. The digital gold narrative, you know, really struck me in the early days. And then, frankly, I didn't pay that much attention to it for a little while. And then what happened was on the blockchain, on the technology side, uh, I was at the time general counsel of a group called TechSoup, a social enterprise. We worked in 200 countries with you know, nonprofits, some of whom were operating in very hostile environments. So uh, we had this instance, you know, where we were working in Uganda, there was a law that was passed about LGBTQ uh, being illegal, like actually like you could get imprisoned if you were outed as being somebody who was LGBTQ plus. And we had information on organizations servicing that community, like we had their addresses of the brick and mortar of where these organizations, you know, were working. We were very concerned about how this data might get out and what might be the results of this from a very humanitarian perspective. Uh, and I had a dinner with some friends at the State Department who were telling me about blockchain technology, like, oh, you should look at blockchain and, you know, we're all going to be paying more paying attention to this and it's a database and it's going to be a more secure database, blah, blah, blah. So that's when I actually read the white paper. Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. I went out and read it and I was like, this is unreal. So that's how I went down the rabbit hole. And then, of course, I connected the two things together and I was like, oh, that's Bitcoin. It was the same thing. Like, you know, so it, it took me a little while to get away from the digital gold narrative into understanding how powerful the underlying technology, the consensus, the governance really was. But once that connection was made, I mean, like everybody else in this space, you know, it became annoying and obsessed and wouldn't talk about you anything got else. Orange pill. Exactly pills. right. Exactly right. The, the story then becomes, I think, pretty common for all of us, right? Like we all have that. Nobody wanted to be talk to us anymore. And then of course, everybody wanted to talk to us. So that was kind of the path that we all went down. Yeah, exactly. You know, we were a little later to our intellectual journey uh, at Skybridge uh, and Salt, frankly, in terms of, yeah, I, I've been skeptical of Bitcoin uh, for years as well because of the same narratives that are perpetuated by uh, people that are skeptical about it. They say, you know, it's used for criminal activity, illicit financing, uh, you know, it's it's uh, damaging to the environment, all the different things, the, the elements of FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty and doubt that you hear today. And then we just we did more research on the space, got more comfortable with uh, issues like security and custody and, uh, and made a decision to enter the space last year in a timely a timely manner. But we won't get too far into that. But, you know, how going back into the macro themes around how blockchain technology we will focus on Bitcoin more in a second. But blockchain technology, I feel like there's this narrative, a narrative that exists that. You know, I think there are some libertarian roots to Bitcoin and decentralized finance and all that type of stuff. But I think that blockchain and decentralized finance are actually tools of economic empowerment. So I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding politically in the U.S., for example. You see some people on the left that attack Bitcoin because they think it's it's some libertarian nefarious scheme. But how can it really be a tool for economic empowerment? You know, I, I think it's important to say that it, it can be both. You know, and yeah. so the technology itself lends itself to a variety of different applications, some of which can very much be used uh, to exploit, like any technology can be used to exploit, you know. But uh, if the correct policies are in place, I think they can very much be tools for economic empowerment. And that's simply from the idea that there's no longer a centralized gatekeeper who is controlling the storage use, you know, of funds uh, and their release for that matter. And so I think that in my mind, you know, 
fundamentally what we're seeing in society, and this goes well beyond the financial system, is people really wanting to feel like they are more active stakeholders in any system they're engaging in. You see this a lot with you know, centralized platforms, social media, and kind of the push around, like, why don't I own my own data? Why am I locked in here? Why is it hard to port right. things from place to place? You know, the same thing is true in finance, right? So why do I need to be locked into a certain kind of currency and pay an, an exorbitant fee to transfer that into a different currency or whatever it might be, right? There's all these kinds of ways that people feel locked in. Um, now, there's a certain level of sophistication to understand those nuances. And that's where I think you get some of the kind of criticism around this, like how can it be economically empowering if people don't really understand it? But I think that it's not that important that you understand it. It's kind of the mechanisms that are being built around it that are so powerful. I think DeFi is one of these. Centralized finance and the entire movement there. Uh, I think that, for example, NFTs, you know, non-fungible tokens are another example of this, of how creators are being empowered to actually value their creations and get compensated in new and exciting ways. All these things, I think, fundamentally, fundamentally are about uh, economic empowerment and more of a stakeholder model, which is something the forum believes very strongly in. How much of Bitcoin's rise and the rise of NFTs and decentralized finance do you think is born out of the macro environment that we're in, where post-2008 uh, governments borrowed tons of money and kicked the can down the road in order to stimulate the economy and trigger some level of growth. I don't think the, that we've grown as quickly as they would have hoped, given the, the amount of debt uh, that was printed during that time period. And then that was even accelerated by, by several factors uh, during the pandemic, where the U.S. government was at the forefront of that in terms of you know, we created 25 percent of existing money supply in 2020, which is a staggering amount. How much of that uh, that ecosystem, the de decentralized finance and, and Bitcoin ecosystem is driven by all that debt? And how much of Bitcoin is just a brilliant technology that was going to be inevitable regardless of what governments did? You know, I tend to think it's more the latter. And I think that we accelerated the adoption curve on it because of the former. Right. So right. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, no one, know, we don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is or who they were, you know, which I, my view is it's got to be a collective, but regardless, we don't know. And so it's impossible for us to assign motives to the creation of Bitcoin and people do it all the time. So why not me? You know, you think I think we'll ever find out not to interrupt, you, but you think we'll ever <laughs> find out who Satoshi is? I suspect at some point there will be some will or trust or document that is released upon posthumously. That's like, here's the proof that I am. You know, they donate or they. Satoshi, whether it's he, she, or they, they donate their Bitcoin to some some cause or something like that, or they, or they throw it out in the trash so that all the other Bitcoins are worth more, or what, what do they do? You know, maybe because I grew up watching a lot of television, but I feel like I like a dramatic reveal. So I feel like we're we're on a path to some sort of very dramatic reveal that, you know, that is planned by this or those individuals. Um, and I'm, I'm holding out for that. But, you know, right. we don't know. We just don't know. And so there's a mythology around that. I actually, by the way, don't think that the mythology around it is uh, should be divorced from the attractiveness it had, in the, especially in the early days. Right. The mystique around this was part of what drew people to it. Like the fact that mm -hmm. there wasn't there literally is nobody that ever controlled this because the author of the paper that spawned this and the first Genesis block, we don't know who that person is. So there is no way to influence that person because no one can do that because they don't know who it is. So I actually think it was a very powerful and very wise move, uh, whether deliberate or otherwise, I assume deliberate to ensure that the true lack of centrality was kept forever in perpetuity. So yeah. it remains to be seen what happens. But you know, the, the problem addressed in the paper fundamentally is one of double spend. 
right? It isn't necessarily like kind of topple economic systems or whatever. I mean, people imply all kinds of things and read and do it whatever they want. And I have done the same, I'm guilty of the same. Um, but I do think there, there was a recognition that this was a cool cryptographic problem. We wanted to kind of solve it. We wanted to understand what it could do. I find it highly unlikely that the Satoshi Collective could foresaw, you know, all the things that this would spawn. I just, I, I, I find it hard to assign that level of foresight and creative thinking to any individual group of individuals. Who knows? You know, I mean, maybe we're all in the simulation. And this is all just been programmed out. Yeah, I anyway, mean, I mean, you know, to your point about Satoshi, if if that person is still alive and still holds all those bitcoins, talk about being having diamond hands and being a hodler. <laughs> that person has just continued to hold those Bitcoins from one cent all the way to $58,000 per Bitcoin. They're now, you know, multi, multi-billionaire. That is somebody who has incredible belief in what they created and incredible foresight. Um, but that's a yeah, whole other keep story. Keep it safe, right? You know, I mean, I, it would yeah. not surprise me if that were the case. I also think that we know for a fact there are untold Bitcoin billionaires who will never realize those gains because they lost their, they lost their keys. Yeah. Like, that's that's the other thing about Bitcoin. We talk about stories. 21 million. Yeah, you talk about 21 How million coins locking. outstanding. It's actually significantly less than that because that's of the amount right. lost. That's right. That's uh, so right. at least at least you or I aren't one of those people. We might have missed out on, on <laughs> part of the not. upside, but at least <laughs> that's we didn't true. Lose that's true. Well, yay to that. Yay to not having lost keys, but you know, sad to not being a person who had the foresight to then, you know, not store them in a device that you then erased or something right. else. But intellectually, you know, VJ Boyapati is somebody that we had on Salt Talks. And if you're in the Bitcoin ecosystem, you know who that is. He wrote a great paper called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And I think it does as well as anything that I've read, uh, make the intellectual case for why. Bitcoin is sound money and why it is better at being gold than gold. In your view, intellectually, how do you look at Bitcoin and people who say, well, it's not backed by anything. It doesn't have any real value. It's just made up out of thin air. Intellectually, why does Bitcoin make sound money and why is it inherently worth something? Yeah. You know, the, the reason we started the Money Reimagined podcast, uh, which I co-host with Michael Casey on Coindesk, uh, is exactly to point out this, the comedy of that statement, right? I mean, like, what actually is money? What backs money? You know, and now you could argue the full faith and credit of the U.S. government is what backs the U.S. dollar, and that's not nothing to sneeze at. But you know, it's certainly not the paper it's printed on. You know, there's there's right. we have that whole idiom like it's not worth paper it's printed on. Well, haha, right? So so money inherently is 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 funny that way. Uh, we point out how memes over time, you know, have generated value in and of themselves. And so, you know, Bitcoin has value. Yes, that's true in part because people think it has value. But I also think the underlying principles behind it, the technology, the governance have inherent value, you know, beyond even more so than I would say uh, the money printer. You know what I mean? So right. and it's, and it, that is less likely, actually, it's it's less in a way. It's less plausible that that will, that could ultimately dramatically fail. Yeah. You know? So right now we're relying on uh, a lot of systems that are bolstering the value of certain kinds of currencies. We're relying on certain political leadership and decisions that are bolstering, you know, the value of certain kinds of currency. And I mean, it's around the world. I'm not speaking about the, the dollar specifically. Um, that is not true of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has an inherent value because of what it enables and what you can do with it. And the new system that it, it, it can, you know, it is starting to bring into uh, reality. And, and because of, I think, uh, the other thing that's that spawned. So, you know, there's a tendency to really focus exclusively on Bitcoin and I understand why we do that, but I actually look at crypto as a space more, more generically, personally, because I think that, 
you know, this is a rising tide and the value of it is going to be determined by the adoption that it gets, by the ways it's being used, by the creativity and the application layer. All of that is going to prove ultimately to be almost embedded into the value of the underlying coin. So I want to build on what you just said about, you know, whether or not Bitcoin remains the overwhelming dominant player in the cryptocurrency space. So right now it is. And in these types of businesses, whether you look at Google or Apple or Amazon, it's often a not winner take all, but winner dominate the ecosystem. Do you think Bitcoin is now so far out of the barn that it's going to continue to dominate market share in the cryptocurrency market? Or do you think there's a threat of a better technology and a better protocol coming through that could disrupt it and, and take a larger percentage of the market share than perhaps the consensus view is? So, you know, this just isn't how I look at the space. And I understand why, you know, people who are focusing on the price index look at the space in this way. But I actually don't think that there's a cage match brewing here between, let's just say, Bitcoin and Ethereum, right, as the two dominant players in the right. market. They're just, they're different things. You know, they were they were built for different purposes. Uh, the application layer on Ethereum is, is becoming even more and more robust over time. You're seeing competitors, you know, to that. So I think for every sort of use case, yeah, there's probably going to be one thing that becomes, you know, dominant in a way with other players that are maybe, maybe they rise and fall, you know, whatever. Right. Um, but I think that, that you have to kind of look at it in that fashion. So are you talking about it as a medium exchange, as a store of value? Are you talking about an application level on top of it that's enabling other kinds of transactions or trades? Like, I think all these things matter and I'm hard pressed to see how one thing is suddenly going to I don't know, dominate everything else when we cannot even imagine at the moment, you know, what, what people are going to do with this stuff. Like we're still so early, you know right. what I mean? Like NFTs. I mean, we had crypto kitties back in you know, 2017, but like, I don't think any of us knew that it was going to blow up to be what it is today. You know, you didn't think that Beeple was, like. you didn't think Beeple was going to sell a piece of NFT <laughs> digital saying. art for $69 million. That's what I'm saying, right? Like we cannot even imagine what's going to happen here. So you know, we're we're all uh, we're all doing the best we can with the information we have at the time. And in my mind, I feel like yeah, you know, Bitcoin's dominant because in part because it was first, in part because it's robust, in part because there is clear we don't even know who built the thing. You know, like all these things, I think um, perpetuate its value. I don't see that really changing in a in a negative way. But I do see other things coming up that are going to be probably just as valuable you know, and they're, and they're right. not really competitive. So that's, that's how I see the space uh, yeah. developing over time. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. Uh, people like to look at the uh, market cap of gold, you know, it's around 10 trillion, uh, but gold in an environment where people would typically think gold would outperform, uh, you know, there's this binge of debt that the U S government and global governments have been on. That's typically a very bullish environment for gold. Gold has actually performed pretty mediocre. And as, as Bitcoin has sort of taken that mantle uh, as the alternative store of value, let's talk about NFTs for a second. I think it's fascinating. Like my, my older brother, for example, he had all these old sports cards that were sitting in our parents' house that we didn't think two seconds about. They were in a plastic case. We all moved on. He's a doctor. He lives in Wisconsin. I live in New York. My parents live in North Carolina. Suddenly this massive collectibles craze happens and, mm -hmm. and we start fishing out these old sports cards. And then I introduce him to NBA Top Shots, which is a NFT platform that's gotten a lot of attention. But And he started dabbling in that and the values of those uh, digital mm -hmm. highlights started going crazy. And I just sort of had this eureka moment where I'm like, wow, this is in a, in a world that's completely digital where most millennials and, and Gen Z and Gen X and whatever all these generations are called live largely online. Why wouldn't a digital collectible 
have the same value as a physical collectible if there is verifiable scarcity. But why, in your view, is this space exploding so much? Why is somebody willing to pay $69 million for a piece of digital art? And do you think this is just the beginning or do you think this is a speculative mania uh, that's happening sort of at the early stages of NFTs driven partly by easy money from the Fed? Well, there's a lot there to unpack. Yeah, John. there is a lot to unpack. <laughs> let me, let me, I asked you about seven questions in one, but talk to me about NFTs. Yeah, what yeah. What they are, why they're significant, and where you see the future. Let me start with something that that you that you noted, right, about the transition from a physical object to a digital object. And so we talk a lot about digital nativity, right? So the generation uh, that is, you know, let's call them Gen Z. I don't even know what they're called anymore, but you know that yeah, this yeah. generation of kind of like the alpha generation. I think I have some kids that are in the alpha generation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Hopefully they right? generate I don't alpha know what my kids are. My, my two-year-old, I have no idea what generation she's going to be called. Um, but they're digital natives, right? I mean, like just even seeing my seven-year-old and how she interacts with devices and just the natural way that that flow happens. And, you know, digital twinning is going to be very, very common, you know, even for this generation uh, of, of young adults right now, uh, which differs from, you know, the way that my parents' generation, right, like thinks about this stuff. Um, we have a generation that we are raising, literally in my case, of crypto natives, like people who are, are going to be, crypto is going to be so commonplace to them. And I can see my daughter saying to me, I, I can probably see her saying this in like six years when she's 13, you know, how could you possibly have given your data to a social media platform? Like, what the hell were you thinking, giving right. her anything about you to a centralized player that you didn't control it? Like, what were you, you know, I think that's going to be anathema to people. And decentralized systems that are backed by blockchain are, are paving the way for that, right? Like, when you can have more ownership, NFTs are an example of how a creator can create something and then own a stream of income that's coded basically into, you know, that, that um, creation over time and not have to necessarily fight for that through an agency or a gallery or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think there's going to be a natural way that people, the things that, that we find still a little bit maybe new or, you know, different, they're going to just be so natural to this generation. And so, so uh, I think that we're, we're seeing some of that right now. We're seeing a generation that, you know, they were never really going to buy a painting and put it on their wall because <laughs> that's not, how they interact with the world, right? They interact with the world through their social media, through their whatever it might be. And so having that image and having it be their background or their avatar or whatever it is, is much more powerful for them. And this is a way that reflects the, their mode of being, just simply being in the world, which is which is very digital and online. So I think we're just seeing the generational almost transition. This is a very logical extension of the way people think about these kinds of, these kinds of things, this kind of ownership, right? Now, right. next question I think is, do I think that $69 million, you know, that is really not for me to say, right? Like, so, so, so you wouldn't I have matched that, that bid. You, you weren't partic participating. <laughs> yeah, in that uh, uh, yeah, no, if I had that, I would be city of San Francisco. How do we, you know, how do we get some, uh, how do we get something going here? Uh, there'd be other things I do with that money personally. Now, that being said, you know, obviously that was worth that to someone, you know, and, and, and again, it's not for me to say. So I think that yeah. You know, do I think that that is overvalued? Again, totally not for me to say because the market valued it at that, at that price. Now, what I will say is that I think that there's a little bit of, you know, this is a fad right now, for sure. I'm not going to call it hype. I don't like that term. I think it's a fad. People are really like, I want to mint something because it's cool. And a lot of what they're minting is kind of like, I don't know anyone, you know. Um, there's this, uh, there's this SNL skit that I talk about from uh, a while ago. I, I was very little when this came out, so I'm sure no one listening probably remembers it, but, um, the actor is playing Picasso. Okay. And so he's like painting in his studio and doing whatever, and everyone's coming and paying, and paying all this money. And he goes to a restaurant and he's at the cafe and he doesn't have his wallet. 
And so the waiter's like, oh, sorry, you got to pay your bill, right? And he's like, what? I'm Picasso. No, we still got to pay, man. And so he blows his nose into a napkin, signs it, Picasso. And he's like, I'm Picasso. Here's what you got. Okay. So some of what we're seeing is a little more like that, you know, no matter, you know, than it is like the actual art. Right. Um, And that's to be expected because people are playing around with this, you know? And so over time, I think you'll see that the true talent does emerge and that's where the value is really captured. And a lot of NFTs are kind of like, you know, they're there, but you know, it's not necessarily uh, attracting this sort of, this sort of price on the transaction level. Right. I want to go back to Bitcoin for a second. Bitcoin and decentralized finance and the cryptocurrency space at large, you work at the World Economic Forum, which there's a lot of big institutions that that are members of the World Economic Forum and active participants in all of your events and the programs you put together. What's what's the uh, the view from that institutional lens right now of bitcoin and of this movement you know I, obviously uh, bitcoin has sort of libertarian grassroots type of origins but you're seeing institutions whether it be skybridge capital where i am gainfully employed or insurance companies like mass mutual new york life recently put someone on the board of a leading uh crypto bitcoin focused uh, investment firm What's the lens and the feedback that you're getting from members of your community about, is this something that we need to be a part of, or they still cast a skeptical eye at the whole thing? You know, part of the beauty of my job is that we, we don't have skin in the game, right? So I'm not, uh, the, the forum's not invested, you know, in right. crypto. You're not We're saying, not- hey, invest in my World Economic Forum uh, Bitcoin fund. Well, yeah, right. Like we don't, yeah, we have an issue token, you know. We, uh, we, we aren't building, you know, we don't roll out a new protocol or applications and things like that, right? We're, we're really influencing uh, the policy and the governance kind of landscape here. And so, you know, over time, you know, we, there's always been interest in these topics. First mention on the program, the public program was actually 2015. We had a session that used the name Bitcoin in the title. But that, of course, means that prior to that, you know, there was a lot of conversation happening in closed door sessions uh, that didn't make it to the public stage. So I would say, you know, almost from 2011 or so, this was a conversation happening on some of our major constituents. And part of what I've seen as my responsibility in this role is to really normalize those conversations, right? To say, like, you should be paying attention to this. It's fine to be open about your, the fact you're paying attention to it. It's fine to be open about the fact that you own it. You know, this is not going to be seen as like something where you're engaging in like criminal activity or fraud or right. money laundering or whatever, right? You can be. You're, you're not going to get fired from your job because you're That's delving right. into That's this right. sketchy asset class. Exactly. And over time, I think we have been able to be a very strong influencer in in the openness around the conversation, right? People being willing to share their holdings, and then of course that leads to people being more willing to get into the market, you know, and explore the potential and figure out like what what this really is. So a lot of the companies that, you know, we that we've seen make these some of these big moves have been part of these, you know, conversations in various ways or kind of heard the things that we've been talking about. Um, and I, I think I think that uh, that's going to continue. You know, I mean, we're, we're now getting before it used to be that we had to kind of really push to have these conversations, you know, be public and try to get speakers on our stage to be willing to talk about them. Now, I mean, at our Lisa Davos agenda you know, let me just put it this way. It was not hard to find very senior people who were willing to talk publicly about this topic during right. the Davos agenda, right? So, and that's even, and only I've only been here three and a half years and the transition yeah. is extraordinarily dramatic in terms of that. Yeah, I think the price appreciation will help people stick their neck out and say, yeah, actually we've been investing in this for a while, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Bang exactly. on their chest a little bit. But um, talking about regulation uh, around Bitcoin and around crypto, 
I think obviously the generation of regulators around the world is an older generation. Uh, they maybe don't understand certain elements of Bitcoin, but I think there's also plenty of reasons why uh, they're just doing their job by, by continuing to be cautious. But you know, there's this notion that, that Bitcoin is used uh, only for nefarious purposes, for illicit financing. Janet Yellen has offered similar types of comments uh, as she's assumed the role of Treasury Secretary. But there's also the IRS recently launched a program called Operation Hidden Treasure, where they're training their agents to learn how to spot fraud uh, and tax evasion on blockchains. Do you think we are inevitably going to get sound regulation of Bitcoin and of decentralized finance? Or do you think that's an impossible nut to crack? What's your overall outlook on the regulatory environment globally for digital assets? Well, I certainly think it's an area that is uh, being heavily scrutinized by regulators all over the world. You know, so this is certainly not unique to the United States. I think people are really struggling with how do we effectively regulate this in a way that is going to provide the protections that we think are important for our citizens, but are also going to not, uh, you know, disincentivize innovation, right? Like we want right. creativity. And so we've seen from, from the early days, you know, things like regulatory sandboxes or things like this, where you could have a more collaborative process in some jurisdictions more than others to kind of figure out like what's the right thing. Now, there's a couple of things I think are really important. And I think that along the lines that we've talked about with empowerment of actors in this space, you know, I think we have this shift in when you think about crypto, it's a, a bit of a shift from consumer, you know, to user, right, in a way. And so I, I've been saying, I think that our notions of consumer protection are kind of outdated. You know, like who's the consumer? Who are we protecting them from? You know, if there's no centralized entity, like who are they, who is that, you know? And that's different from kind of like blatant fraud, like hacks and things like this that we all agree are just like, should be prosecuted or non-starters right. or just like bad actors, right? But in this case, it's it's not, you can't quite port those concepts over. They don't work. They don't, it's, it's square peg and round hole a bit. Now, I think the impulses are reasonable and fair and part of, I would argue, the role of a regulator, right? To make sure no one's getting fleeced or scammed or whatever it is. Um, but how do you do that is a very complicated question. Right. And, and part of that role is making sure that you have a regulatory framework in place. You know, I think you're seeing right. that play out in the U.S. There's only a certain number of vehicles that allow you to get exposure to Bitcoin, for example, one being the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is now 40 plus billion in assets. Some people invest in MicroStrategy, Michael Saylor's company, because they have three plus billion dollars worth of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. So you're, you're forcing people to invest in Bitcoin through channels that might not always be completely healthy and and uh and well, uh, you could see a bitcoin etf in 2021 because you have the new sec chairman taught at a blockchain course at mit yeah. are you of that similar mind do you think there's going to be more regulation and friendly regulation that at least allows the little guy to have a little bit more protection I think that's a direction of travel. You know, what the time frame is for that, I have no idea. I think there are a lot of priorities the pandemic has raised. And so is this going to be kind of top of the agenda? You know, I don't know. Right. Yeah. But I think that's a direction of travel. I think that it is not a coincidence, you know, that the Gary Gensler is in the position. Right. I think that um, it's interesting to see the contrast there, I think, with Janet Yellen and the views are are uh, they're compatible in some ways and in some ways they're they're not. You know, so I think it's going to be really, really healthy in some ways to have that sort of tension reflected, you know, across these agencies. Um, one thing I think is really important, of course, is that, you know, 
well, this is true of many asset classes, but I think it's really true of crypto is it doesn't fall within one agency's purview. You know, you really have to think across right. a variety of agencies. And part of the early days of confusion was like, is it a commodity? Is it a security? Like, well, who is regulating it? You know, right. and I think with, with Bitcoin, simply, it's kind of like, well, you know, it sort of depends on what, what facet you're looking at of the thing, you know, like, is it is it the elephant? Is it the tail? Is it the, is the trunk? You know, so there's, there's kind of different ways of looking at this. And I think that coordination across the agencies is really critical. My hope is that with this new administration, it's really trying to put forth a much more collaborative uh, approach, I think, to these kinds of topics. You're going to see uh, holistic regulations. That's that's what I want to see. And if that takes time. So I think rather than having, you know, the SEC, for example, or, you know, whoever it means, CFTC or whatever, just put something out there. I want that. I would prefer that that be again, holistic, thought about in context of other things that might come out of other agencies that are going to create a broader picture of, you know, exactly how to navigate this asset class. In some ways, it feels like all these different agencies are trying to avoid the, the heavy <laughs> responsibility <laughs> of actually regulating it. Like, don't talk to us, talk to the CFTC. Oh, don't talk to me, talk to the SEC. But uh, eventually one of these Power organizations- if they all go together, you know, if they all do yeah, at the same time. Exactly, they'll all jump know? in the pool together. Yeah. But I want to talk about the geopolitics of Bitcoin. We were talking about regulation. So China, for example, they run 60 odd percent of global mining operations for Bitcoin, but buying and selling of Bitcoin in China has been banned because some people were using it to evade capital controls. For example, places like Iran, Venezuela have started to engage in, in mining operations as well because they see potentially, uh, whether it be central bank digital currencies or Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as a way to evade uh, the SWIFT system through which the United States operates a lot of their uh, you know, financial uh, punitive programs to, to try to punish nations that they deem as being uh, bad actors. So do you think the United States, uh, first of all, why do you think those countries are doing it? Am I accurate in thinking that Okay, they see this as a new future that they can uh, they can get more fairness on the global stage in terms of their economies. And do you think the U.S. will eventually have to come to the realization that okay, this is something that's inevitable with or without us, and we need to invest in and become a leader in Bitcoin specifically, and also in you know, the idea of digital assets, central bank digital currencies, and all those railings. On the last point first, you know, um, do I see the U.S. embracing Bitcoin in the ways you're describing? I'm not so sure about that. But digital you don't think assets. The Treasury is going to be out there uh, buying Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that we'd ever know. <laughs> we put it that way, or that it would be yeah, permitted. Yeah, and maybe they already have. Yeah, who knows? You know, yeah. uh, would, would it would it surprise you? You know, so who knows? I, um, I certainly don't. And I think that, but on the digital assets, 100. I mean, I think you're already seeing these statements that you know Jay Powell coming out and saying the digital dollar and looking at that as a priority. You know, that's a pretty strong statement uh, and quite different from the things we've heard before. That's of course a reflection of, of five years of, of intense research that Fed's been doing into the topic. You know, some of which we help facilitate some connections and things like that. So I think that. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any question that things like CBDC are already, they're already exploring, you know, what is the use case? What makes sense? What problem right. solving with this? Why does it matter? You know, uh, very robustly and digital assets similarly. So I think those are different questions. And I think we've already seen evidence that the latter is happening. 
Um, and then in terms of why countries are doing what they're doing, you know, it's interesting because I think there's some countries that have really embraced dollarization. You know, they're very, it's very important to them. They pegged, whether it's formally or informally, you know, they've kind of embraced it and others that have not done that. And, you know, uh, uh, there are others who are, you know, who could certainly speak to, you know, what are the patterns that we see there, you know, around that. Some of those patterns that are kind of obvious, like there's just sort of political resistance on the part of leadership that can change over time as leadership changes, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but I think there is a sense that perhaps you can have a strong economy without necessarily pegging to any other currency, whether that's the yuan, the dollar, you know, whatever it is. And is that more possible now if you as a country kind of embrace these opportunities? It seems to me like a reasonable experiment, you know? So I think that's probably part of what you're seeing. I don't know that it's explicitly about sanctions avoidance and swift avoidance and those things. I mean, it may well be. Uh, it would surprise me a bit if it were that, you know, targeted, apart from maybe like a couple of jurisdictions here and there, which, you know, I, I think anything they can do to get away from the U.S. is not surprising. Um, but I also think we can't underestimate, you know, the, the sanctions effect it's had on countries and their inability to engage in digital economy is, is quite profound. So if there are ways of circumventing that system, you know, it, it seems logical to me that they would be exploring that, although I have no evidence that that's the case. Right. Another topic that you've written about that I think is fascinating. We had Marty Chavez on Salt Talks a few months ago. He's the former CTO of Goldman Sachs. And he was talking about uh, how he's fascinated by the space and the profound impact potentially of decentralized digital identities, both financial identities and health identities and otherwise. So, for example, he talked about, let's say we pass a $2 trillion stimulus package we have a digital dollar. Every U.S. citizen uh, has a digital wallet through which we can instantaneously ascertain whether they're eligible to receive stimulus checks, and we can zap that money into their bank account instantaneously uh, so they can get it into the economy more quickly, and, and that has uh, tremendous benefits if we can do that all quickly, verifiably. There's also the health piece of it. So for example, we host a big conference, the World Economic Forum hosts a big conference. If we could verify that every individual who's attending our conference has been vaccinated or has antibodies for COVID uh, or test negative in the days leading up to the event, that, that has a lot of benefits as well. But there's also concerns about Big Brother, about you know, is this something where the government's gonna have every piece of information about us and be able to track us and follow our digital lives as well. What promise does decentralized digital identity have? And let's imagine a world where that's fully uh, that's fully mature. The idea of a digital identity. What does that look like? And are we able to avoid those concerns about Big Brother? So, yeah, I, you know, this is the most foundational element of the entire thing, right? So, when we really solve the the questions and the the I don't want to call them problems because, you know, they're just things that have to be solved. When we really crack this nut around digital identity, uh, we're going to see massive escalation, I think, in, in the use and adoption of everything from digital currency. You know, all these different kinds of, of applications are just going to blow up. Um, I don't think there's any question about that. When it becomes super, super easy and obvious to hold digital, it's already very easy, by the way, to hold a digital wallet. That's not like a hard thing to do. People just don't realize right. how easy that is, right? Right. Um, and so once people kind of really understand that and it's very normalized, you're going to see this becoming a very obvious way of 
decreasing the lag in stimulus. You can almost, you can imagine a super targeted stimulus, right? Like you could imagine like you could do that because you can actually program into the code base these kinds of people in this geography. You do it based time. on employment, based on income, That's based right. on geography. You can do it all kinds right. of it. That really blew That's my right. mind when, when Marty started talking about all that stuff because I hadn't really fully uh, thought about what it meant. Well, not just that. I mean, we know that the stimulus payments, you know, despite great effort on the part of the government, there was a lot of fraud in that system. You know, I mean, the checks are stolen. They got to check cash in places. The money's gone. It's lost. It's one of the wrong people. You know, yeah. a lot of people a that, lot of that are eligible that didn't get it because they don't, right. they're even not worse. set up in the traditional banking system. That's right. Even worse. You know, and so, and so we have to recognize there's a last mile problem where an awful lot of people who really needed that money, you know, just weren't able to claim it, file claims for it, like go through that incredibly burdensome process. So, so a lot of this, I think, is extraordinarily powerful. Now, a couple of comments on that since we went there. You know, I think it's really important that we recognize that last mile question, right? Like what, we're, what digital wallets can do. Well, there's a certain kind of profile of person that can easily hold digital wallets. To clarify my earlier remark, you know, for you and I, it's very easy to hold digital wallet. For digital natives, it's very easy to do that. For a lot of people, it's not easy to do that, you know, because they have like they lack access to the right technology. They don't have the hardware is not available. You know, connectivity is not available. They can't rely on having reliable Internet to access those funds as needed, whatever it might be there you know, or the phone system, whatever it might be. There are reasons why we have to be very conscious of that mm-hmm. and, and make sure that whatever we're building, particularly if it's the government who's pushing us forward, is going to be truly inclusive. And so I think I, I actually think to the credit of the U.S. government, that has been a reason that the U.S. government has kind of held off a little bit on these massive wide-scale experiments because they really want to focus on the problems of poverty in our country, which are systemic and have a lot of other reasons beyond, you know, the ability to have a bank account. There's a lot of other reasons why that's the case. So, um, so I just want to land that point and make that very clear. Now, moving away from that and saying to the point about these targeted stimulus and opportunities like this, you know, I think that um, it is tremendously powerful. I do think we're going to see a lot more normalization of this. I do think we're going to see programmability. And I do think that, that does lead to increased access or, or um, on the part of, of any sort of big brother entity that could be a company, it could be a government, you know, I don't want to just use that term generically. Uh, we're seeing concern about this from China's DCEP experiment, you know, so now in China, there's right. kind of a cultural uh, norm around, you know, a certain level of surveillance. It's a quite different cultural right. expectation than here in the United States, right? So rolling out an experiment digital yuan is not going to be as much of a dramatic thing there as it is here. You're already seeing a lot of privacy advocates be very concerned about the implications here. And I think that that is well-placed concern. Right. We'll talk about energy usage. So I think that's a, an increasingly common angle that Bitcoin detractors and, and detractors of the ecosystem are citing as a reason why there shouldn't be larger scale adoption of Bitcoin, most specifically, I think, because of the uh, the volume of transactions and the amount of energy that uses do you have concerns around energy use uh, related to Bitcoin? Janet Yellen has talked about that uh, as along with others. But how do you view the energy consumption piece of Bitcoin? So I always like to ask, you know, compared to what? Like, what are we right. comparing Bitcoin's energy usage to? You know, are we comparing it to software? Okay, then, I mean, maybe I buy it. Are we comparing it to printing, storing, transferring, you know, money, like paper and digital, and and, sorry, paper money and and coins? Then I'm like, uh, I'm not so sure that, you know, we're doing so badly. Um, You know, what I'll say more generically is I find it really interesting as a society, and this is true, I think, across our entire society and the way we think about climate. We have, we, you know, the people, I suppose, have decided that certain kinds of energy usage are bad and certain kinds of energy usage are good. 
right? Like there are some that we, we have no problem with and some that we're like, well, that's just terrible. How dare you? And we really apply a moral judgment to these things. And I think that the moral judgment varies culture to culture. So I think it's important to recognize that. And I think it varies, you know, person to person, right? We have different views about who should be able to use a lot of energy and who should not be able to use a lot of energy, you know? So um, I, I just, I always find this, this a really interesting tell on the person who is making the claim, you know, and where, what their perspective is uh, versus others. Now, that being said, I think it's important to note that there are a couple of things that I, I find don't get enough airtime in the Bitcoin, especially Bitcoin energy conversation, right? So, because I'm leaving aside other kinds of cryptocurrencies and proof of stake and all that kind of thing, but focusing on Bitcoin. Number one, there's a lot of green energy being used to mine Bitcoin like tremendous amounts of green energy are being used. And in fact, there's been a conscious effort on the part of many miners to transition away from kind of oil, gas, traditional energy to more green energy. And I think that some of the experiments that have been done there are quite powerful. They're actually generating energy that can actually, uh, it kicks off excess that can be used to power, you know, um, homes and other kinds of kinds of things. That's interesting. Uh, and that's getting, I think, more and more, it's increasingly becoming a priority in the community, and we're seeing more and more of that. Number two is a really interesting point made by, made by Ross Stevens, which is that uh, Bitcoin mine, mining you know, facilities, let's call them, can really be set up in totally uninhabitable parts of the world. So you can actually be solar, for example, right? You could actually be mining Bitcoin, generating solar energy, gridding that, using it to power parts of the world. And because you need so little you know, maintenance of these mines, it's not the kind of thing where you have to kind of have somebody living there or have a whole infrastructure around that, right, in these areas. So there's a possibility that if we really pay attention to that, and I think this remains speculative, but it's possible that we could actually be generating energy from sources and parts of the world that we couldn't before. And that could maybe be helpful in resolving the, the climate crisis that we're in. So, so it's a much more complicated conversation I think, than the sort of black and white Bitcoin right. energy in a bad, you know, kind of thing that we often see. Yeah. I try not to editorialize myself as the interviewer, but yeah, we, we've had a lot of interesting conversations around the, the energy usage piece. And I, I definitely believe that it actually is a great opportunity for us to equalize access to energy. We also had a salt talk with Richard uh, Byworth, who is the CEO of Diginex, which is a a digital asset exchange based in Singapore. And he talked about in, in a lot of countries, there's certain uh, energy projects, whether it be hydroelectric, solar, wind, that are being shuttered because they say, oh, we don't have the level of demand. It's hard to get it to the grid. It's more expensive to get the energy to the grid relative to, to producing the energy. So we're going to shut down these existing projects. And actually, uh, Bitcoin mining is popping up in a lot of those places and being able to tap into what was dormant or stranded energy. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating conversation. I think you know, as ESG becomes a more and more uh, relevant topic, which I think it will continue to be, I think that conversation around energy usage is going to be increasingly relevant. So it's going to be important for the Bitcoin community, I think, uh, to continue to tackle those questions and continue to make sure that investment in Bitcoin mining is done through renewable sources of energy. But yeah. last question I have for you, and I always have to, to ask this, so we balance the conversation a little bit because you and I are obviously have been orange-pilled, but uh, what are the greatest risks in your in your mind? If we sit down in 10 years, uh, at the World Economic Forum, and we're having a glass of wine at Skybridge's famous uh, wine party that we do at the piano bar there uh, in Davos. And we say, man, that, that Bitcoin thing, that, that really failed uh, spectacularly, or, or this entire crypto experiment falls apart. What would be the reasons for that? And what are the biggest risks and threats you think uh, to this entire movement? 
Well, I, I personally, I'll answer it two ways. I'll per, I personally think the biggest risks and threats to the world around this are some of the things I, I highlighted earlier, which are we're going to massively, massively increase the digital divide. Uh, there's going to be a crypto divide that sits on top of the digital divide. And that means that people that already had access you know, to certain kinds of uh, wealth generation or whatever now have this new avenue and there's zero access to an increasingly large number of people who for a variety of reasons are not able to access this. And so that is something I'm very concerned about. Um, it's one of the reasons I push so hard on more inclusive teams building in the space. You know, I focus a lot of my, I try to amplify a lot of voices that are focusing on this question of inclusion. So for me personally, and I think for the forum, that is a, a big concern that we raise a lot with uh, those in the ecosystem who are, you know, who are in a position to really do something about it. So uh, so that's how I'll, I'll answer that. Now, on the other hand, what do I think would kind of kill the ecosystem and like cause everyone to be like, oh God, Bitcoin is a nightmare, you know? Um, honestly, I think Bitcoin is, so, I think it's something that's a PR situation, truly. Like, I think there's going to be something that could happen, whether it's some big reveal around, you know, the biggest owner, Satoshi is a- Satoshi's actually Bernie Madoff's uh, nephew and- and uh, Yeah, actually, something like this. Right? to be a polymath, but, but he invented it and then and runs away go. with all of his- There Bitcoin. you go. Something like that, right? I actually think the Satoshi reveal that we were talking about, joking about earlier, that, I mean- there are some people that nobody would be happy to know were the the you know the the brain behind this, right? Even right. if you could kind of say, well, oh, you know, it was a crazy person who did this, but it's really actually turned out to be awesome. So I right. think that's that's something. I think it's something like that that's going to cause because it's just such a fickle. It's a fickle thing, right? People are people are into it, but then the minute there's a criminal kind of uh, thing that happens, everyone's like, "Oh God, I don't want to," you know. So there's a big element, I think, of alignment here where people are that that is there's a reputational risk still that people perceive, which I again I, I try to push back against. I don't think it's really based on anything right. real, but it is there, and that's what I think. Something what about like things like happen. like quantum computing and fifty one percent nation state attacks? Do you think? Uh, yeah, those will get to the point specifically, where I just yeah. find the 51% attack to be, I mean, it's certainly theoretically possible. I just don't, I, again, we talked about how much of it's lost, right? Like who are you, who are the 51%, you know, right. a lot of those people we don't know who they are, you know? So who are you influencing? I don't really know how that, how that would work um, in Bitcoin specifically on other forms of crypto more possible. So fair enough, but you asked about Bitcoin, so I'll answer that. Uh, and then quantum, you know, I think that everyone's so aware of it. And so I guess I have faith in the really brilliant minds who are, who are working in this space in a technology layer and that they're they're staying where they need to be with that, you know? So it's something in the early days I was, I was concerned about because I thought we'd kind of get, I didn't know that we'd have, there was just a dearth of developers in the space, right? So now, I mean, like there's so many people who can code in this and, you know, know uh, who know how to affect the core. And so I think that I, I'm not overly concerned about that coming up as a, as a big surprise attack. Well, Sheila, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. We hope to see you either at, at a World Economic Forum event. I know uh, it's scheduled, not in Davos this year, but in Singapore in August. So if that happens, maybe I'll see you there. And uh, we hope you come to New York for our SALT New York conference. We announced that last week, uh, September 13th to the 15th. We're hoping, like the World Economic Forum, that that late summer, uh, fall period is when people start to get back to normal in terms of traveling and gathering in large-ish groups. Obviously, everyone's going to still be cautious. They'll probably be mask wearing and we're engaged with partners around that digital identity piece and ensuring that everyone who enters the venue is either vaccinated and or testing negative for the virus. So 
anyways, we'll be great to see you in person and get you to one of our yeah. live events or, or see you in. in uh, well, thanks, well. John. Yeah. And fingers crossed that that timing that we're also really banking on is in fact, what transpires. It'll be really great to, to get some in-person time with, with you and others. Uh, yeah. It's like revolutionary to see humans gathering at sporting events. <laughs> I know, like, right? like, like, wow, true. this feels, this feels weird. Like, I feel like I'm doing something bad. But, uh, it feels it good though. Adjustment. It's going to be a big yeah. adjustment for a lot it of us. It feels good. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Sheila Warren uh, from the World Economic Forum. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks. Also on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference. But please follow us as well on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. We're being more active there, trying to be more uh, Generation Z, if you will, digital native. I guess if we're going to be in the digital asset space, we should be. Uh, and please spread the word about these SALT talks, especially these digital asset talks. I think freeing your mind and making yourself open-minded to these ideas, even if you're still a skeptic of something like Bitcoin, I think uh, irrefutably decentralized finance and digital assets are revolutionizing the traditional worlds of finance. So I think it's important that we spread the word about these conversations as well. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here soon.